0: Section 10 of Being Negro in America by J. Saunders Redding. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 10. Like the capacity for thought and the desire for knowledge, the instincts for personal liberty and, within reason, power over one's destiny are attributes of human mind. They are stronger in some than others. Where they have been weakened by catastrophe say, long-continued planned violence, as in war, or widespread social disorganization, as in times of great economic crises, the instincts can be perverted or even totally destroyed. There was danger of this perversion, which actually developed in some countries in Europe during America's Great Depression, when the feeling grew that only Franklin D. Roosevelt had answers and that everything depended on him. The American people were all but ripe to surrender their minds and the control of their destiny. It was the distortion or atrophy of this instinct that the communists hoped to find in the American Negro. They had good reason for such hopes, and they were not loath to express it. The especially intense exploitation and heavy oppression to which the millions of Negroes in America are subject make it imperative for— the party, to devote its best energies and its maximum resources toward becoming the recognized leader and champion of Negroes. The intense exploitation and heavy oppression were true enough, but there was something that the communists did not take into account, something psychical and perhaps unworldly which even the people whom they hoped to inveigle did not think about. It was not the Negroes' wonted resiliency though this was something. Rather, it was what I think of only as the spiritual cohesion of democracy. This cohesion is organic to the delicately balanced ideological structure that democracy is, and it is the attribute which makes it impossible to separate the destiny of America from the destiny of democracy itself. For democracy is less a form of government than it is a way of life and the principles, freedom, equality, justice, on which this way of life is founded, have an appeal as universal as the idea of God. And what I am saying is that, in spite of heavy oppression and intense exploitation, the American Negro believed in the principles. It was this belief in the principles and the impossibility of ever dissociating them in the Negro's mind from democracy and America that stymied the communists, who could not understand why the colored people's hatred of discrimination, segregation, and all the inequities did not lead naturally to a hatred of democracy. But it was like expecting them to hate God because preachers are sometimes rascals. Nor do I think that this is as abstruse and metaphysical as it sounds. Or if it is, then it is well to remember that American democracy is itself a metaphysic blending as it does subjective truth the inalienable rights of man with moral abstractions liberty and justice for all and mystical concepts the will of the people which admittedly cannot be achieved by all the institutions ever created by man it is this democracy impractical was this that the communists took cognizance of and figured on they did it three times between 1918 and 1942 in each time in crisis when they thought the material values which they wished to substitute as the goal of struggle were enhanced by their very absence. The terms they used were purely materialistic, too, and they applied them in a context that was unbounded by the American continent, and this was another mistake. The American communist Negroes, the communists said, are the historical leaders of their comrades in Africa and to fit them for dealing the most telling blows to world imperialism as allies of the world's working class, is enough to justify all the time and energy that the workers' Communist Party must devote to the mobilization for the revolutionary struggle of the Negro workers in American industry. Then they tried to extirpate the spiritual values of democracy by extirpating Christianity. They did not carry on a full-scale campaign of godlessness, among American Negroes, but the Negro poet Langston Hughes, who went to visit Russia as a guest of the state, came back apparently spiritually callous and published the poem Goodbye Christ, and the appalling fact was lost on no one. By and large, Negroes did not feel that Christ and religion were ready for the discard, certainly not before they had been tried. Indeed, their egalitarian aspirations had their roots in biblical injunction. So the purge of the priests, the smashing of icons, and the tearing down of the churches, which Negroes read about in the American press, were factors in the failure of the Communist Party to win the support of the black masses. And to this one other matter, and the whole story though oversimplified, of that of failure is told, add patriotism. In some sophisticated Negro circles it is a matter for amused laughter that no Negro has ever been a traitor to the United States. But the laughter does not abrogate the fact, more perhaps than any other American minorities, Negroes have had inducements to treachery. Clark expressed it. What has this country ever done for me? And of course, Negroes before and since have asked the same question. It is purely rhetorical. Clark did not realize it, but America, its ideals, its direction, its basic spirit, for we must again deal with abstractions, had given him a belief in the individual worth and the dignity of himself as a man. Du Bois, I think, was right when, back in his young good days, he said, first, this is our country. We have worked for it. We have suffered for it. We have fought for it. We have reached in this land our highest modern development, and nothing, humanly speaking, can prevent us from eventually reaching here the full stature of our manhood our wrongs are still wrong, but we will not bargain with our loyalty. I'm just cynical enough to add a sour note. This loyalty comes in part from a fear of expulsion. It is a historic fear, stemming back to the colonialization movement in the 17th century. Recently, Negroes have seen another minority in other countries expelled, and they know it can be done. But American Negroes have no Palestine. I will not say that Negroes saw democracy as the highest final product of man's political development, nor that they saw enough differences between Communism and democracy to reassure them of the worth of the latter. They did not come to that stage of intellection, and neither did I until much later. I do not think that even the Negro Communists so recently in the news, with all their reputation for mental acumen, Have thought much about the real differences. For actually, of course, the communist doctrine, like the dogma of the most fundamental religious sect, does not encourage thought. If it did, there probably would be less than a village full of communists in the whole western world, for it would be seen that communism is a falling away from the idea that the western world has lived by since the Middle Ages, the idea that man is the end of all human endeavor. And that mere survival and security are not enough for man. And this distinction is only gross enough to explain why communism is the ideology of crisis, why it must seize its chance to win men's minds when their highest hope is only to stave off death. No, even the intellectuals seem not to have seen this. And the other distinctions are subtler, finer, but they are also fundamental. First of all, communism is revolution a rupture of order, a break in the evolution of Western civilization. Democracy, on the other hand, is a way of conducting affairs so that there is some kind of harmonious continuity in the direction of society. There may be errors and blunders, and there are certainly lags, but the people in a democracy are themselves so sensitive that they automatically exert a corrective force in the way a ship's gyroscope does. This sensitiveness is the strength of democracy. Communism must operate within a relatively simple but rigid structure, like the class of society, with a narrow philosophic base and narrowly defined aims, so that the prestige of authority can be enhanced to tyrannical proportions, and so that the decrees of authority can be immediately and continuously checked. There is no margin either for error or disagreement. Democracy is a complex way of life, lacking the utter concentration of energy in any one direction, save in time of national emergency. That marks communism, and that makes no allowance for opposing points of view. Communism must drastically curtail men's freedom in the first place, prescribe his rights and privileges in the second, and finally it must stand constantly ready to alienate those rights, by force if necessary, or by the show of force, or by the implication of force. Democracy seeks a constant enlargement of man's freedom. Because in modern times communism has seemed able to establish itself only by violence, it seems reasonable to assume that violence is necessary to its perpetuation, while at the same time it is more susceptible to disintegration through violence. Under communism, man is the slave of the state. Under democracy, the state is the servant of man. If all this editorializing sounds somewhat beside the point, since only peripherally does it have to do with my negro-ness, then I can only plead that it seems to me a description of the sober facts, and that it is by way of being an explanation to the communists of my anti-communism. I should have given it to them ten years ago. They should have had it back in 1942, when after a ten-year layoff, the communists came at me again and made it necessary for me to try to achieve a certain degree of clarity about these issues. I had written a book called No Day of Triumph, and the communists saw advanced copies of it. They liked it, though I am still puzzled why. Perhaps it was because I did not actually condemn communism, but as a matter of fact expressed sympathy for one Mike Chowen, who had long been a communist and who had fought with the Lincoln Battalion in Spain. Whatever the reason, New Masses first published an excerpt from my book, without, as I remember, getting either my permission or that of the publisher. Soon after the New Masses excerpt appeared in several weeks before publication, I began to get letters from communists all over the country. Some of these came from bookstore managers who told me that they were going to push the book and who invited me to teas and hold autograph parties. I accepted only one of these invitations, to speak to a group in Washington, where I had to go on other business anyway. Later I was asked to appear on a radio program with Ella Winters in Philadelphia, but a previous commitment interfered. A little while after publication, I went to New York to attend a dinner party for Carl Van Vechten, When that was over, sometime after midnight, without quite realizing what we were in for, my wife and I accepted an invitation to another gathering, and found ourselves in an apartment on West 56th Street, surrounded by a motley crowd who told me that they were going to make No Day of Triumph a bestseller. They were going to put me as a writer, they said, in the same income class with Howard Fast and Richard Wright, who, they claimed, but for them, would not have been where they were. Toward dawn what seemed to be a committee of three cornered me in the kitchenette and asked me whether I would sign a card. I said I would have to think about it. What I have written above is what I thought. End of section ten